eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. Few groups of people in recent memory have been so vilified by our president and in our media as have Latin American migrants. At least part of the reason for that is that Americans north of the border do not understand the realities under which many of our southern neighbors live. Our guest today is offering some insight. In 2016, she went to Mexico to teach English at a university and study migration. During her stay, she found the local migrant shelter, became a frequent visitor, and spent much of the next year interviewing people passing through. She immersed herself in the life of the city that lived and breathed migration midway along the perilous route north. Thank you so much, Kelsey Freeman, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Well, the book is No Option But North, The Migrant World and the Perilous Path Across the Border. As a writer and educator, Kelsey has focused on immigration policy, indigenous rights, social justice, and public policy. After graduating from Bowdoin College, she received a Fulbright Fellowship to teach English and study migration in central Mexico. She currently runs a college readiness program for Native American high school students through Central Oregon Community College. Check out her website, KelseyFreemanAuthor.com, and her first name is spelled K-E-L-S-E-Y. We'll talk about what drew you to studying immigration and collecting the stories of migrants who passed through that central Mexican town of Celaya. Before I went back to Celaya, to central Mexico, to study migration, I had studied in Mexico, and specifically, When I was um, traveling in southern Mexico doing research for my undergraduate thesis, which was focused on indigenous social movements, I had this moment, this conversation with the man next to me on the public bus who had been deported from the U.S. several years earlier. And he asked me straight out, how is it that you can come to my country and study my people for two weeks? when I have been repeatedly denied for a visa to go back and visit my family. And that, to me, cut to the heart of it, and I couldn't answer his question. So it caused me to want to dig deeper into how is it that nationality and class and race matters when it comes to finding avenues to get to the U.S., and why was it that the man next to me in the, on the bus was separated from his family. Well, because the lives of many Americans are relatively secure, most find it hard, if not impossible, to really imagine having no option but, but to migrate. Broadly speaking, what are migrants fleeing from that effectively removes the element of choice from their decision, Kelsey? Yeah, so there were three main things that those I spoke to were um, fleeing from. And everyone I spoke to in the migrant shelter said they were going by necessity, that walking um, thousands of miles north was their last option. So people were either fleeing from gang violence, um, fleeing because of lack of economic opportunity, or heading north to reunite with family. Um and for each of these people, it, it was their last option. So if we think about gang violence, um, I think oftentimes, like you mentioned, Charlie, here in the U.S., we don't always realize um, the extent to which gang violence has eroded the ability for people to live their normal lives. I talked to several business owners, for instance, that 
um, you know, gangs in, in much of the Northern Triangle, that is Honduras, Guatemala, um, and El Salvador, and in parts of Mexico, they charge a rent just to have, have a business. So you own a business, you have to pay part of your earnings to the cartel or to the gang. And if you can no longer pay that, what do you do? You either have to do favors for the gang, or your life is threatened, or you head north. And so I talked to several people in that situation where where fleeing was their last option. You write that sharing their stories with you, a complete stranger, was a very significant risk for the migrants moving through Celaya's shelter. So why do you believe they took that chance? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Charlie, in that it is a risk because migrants don't know who they can trust on the journey north. It's an incredibly violent path um, all the way through Mexico and across the border. So I think migrants took the risk in sharing their stories with me um, because they wanted Americans to know. You know, they wanted them to know about these impossible situations where they that they find themselves in, um, where they're choosing between death or doing favors for a gang or heading north. Um, they wanted us to know about these choices that really aren't choices at all. Um, and I think especially I was there, you know, in 2016, 2017, before the 2016 election, and then um, with President Trump's inauguration. And I think with the language really vilifying immigrants coming across the border, they wanted to show us, show Americans, too, that they're not criminals, that they're not gang members, that they're heading north in search of a better life. Well, a friend of yours taught at three different universities. Your former landlord taught full-time at a university and managed three different properties to stay afloat. Your roommate worked 11 hours, six days a week, and said she was still struggling financially. Why is it so hard to gain financial security there in Celaya and Mexico more generally, Kelsey? Yeah, so I think for both the poor and the middle class, there's both a lack of jobs and um, a lack of a living wage. So for the, um, you know, really working class in particular, there's very few worker protections, there's a very low minimum wage, but most workers are paid far below the minimum wage anyway. Um, And then for, you know, more middle class workers, like my landlord or my roommate that were working at universities, there's not a lot of job stability. I remember when I first went to Mexico, when I first started on my Fulbright grant, an official from the Department of Education in Mexico told us, in Mexico, more education does not necessarily mean better economic opportunity. Mm. So to hear that from, you know, a Mexican government official was really striking. And I saw that throughout my time in Celaya, um, that, that people were really struggling to stay afloat, even if they had, um, you know, master's degrees, PhDs even. Well, drug smuggling in Mexico used to be a relatively benign black market business that allowed most Mexicans to remain largely outside of its brutality and violence, but not any longer. So talk about what has changed over the past two decades. Yeah, so I think, you know, in in Mexico and and in the Northern Triangle as well, we see gang violence and cartel violence really eroding the the central pillars of the state. So it's not no longer this fringe industry that's um, 
you know, uh, maybe nefarious, but but is on the fringe, it's really eroding the ability for the state to function. Um, so that means taking over industry. I mentioned, you know, how frequently gangs tax businesses. Um, that means, you know, keeping politicians and police in, in your back pocket um, or in the back pocket of the gangs and the cartels so that politicians can no longer speak out against um, gang violence or have strong plans for tackling it without risking their lives. Um, that policemen um, can sometimes be corrupt or be working with the cartels. Um, and the media, too. I think there's a profound um, mistrust of the media, not just because of um, cartel violence in Mexico, in the case of Mexico, but, but partially um, because um, people don't know whether they what they read is true or whether again journalists um sometimes risk their lives when they cover certain stories um so it's it's this erosion of society where um you can be an average citizen that doesn't want to get involved in any kind of gang violence and still have your lives life profoundly affected still be afraid to leave your house well, even though El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, as well as many Mexican states, are often classified as the most dangerous regions in the world, more than 8 out of 10 migrants seeking asylum from those places are today denied safe haven in the United States. On what grounds, Kelsey? Yeah, so this is something that I think not a lot of Americans know either. Um you know, one of the avenues for coming to the U.S. is political asylum, um, which you mentioned, which is under the grounds that you're fleeing persecution from your home country based on your nationality, your religion, your political opinion, um, your race, uh, or your membership in a particular social group, they call it. So that's a very um, strict legal definition. And the problem is that for many Central American migrants and Mexican migrants that are fleeing this really intense gang violence and maybe fleeing for their lives, they don't necessarily fit into that legal definition because they're not fleeing, not always fleeing because of their religion, you know, or because they were persecuted um, based on their nationality. Um, so, yes, we, we find that even though Central American migrants and Mexican migrants are fleeing for their lives, you know, more than eight out of 10 of them are denied political asylum. Um, so that becomes not a viable option to get to the U.S. either. Um, I think that's something that we don't always realize um, as Americans is that it's very difficult to gain refugee status. Will the choice to walk the entirety of Mexico to the border or attempt to hop the beast, that's the freight trains that snake north, each comes with its own set of risks. Talk about those. Yeah, so this is something that was the most striking thing to me in interviewing dozens of migrants and having informal conversations with hundreds of migrants. It was astounding how many people had been beaten, how many people had been robbed, kidnapped even, sexually assaulted, um, threatened, um, and just the extreme levels of violence that people face on the journey north is really striking and is um, and that's something we don't always hear a lot about in the U.S. either. Um, 
And I think one of the reasons that is, is that Central Americans are really targeted in Mexico. As soon as they step foot across Mexico's southern border and cross into Mexico, they, you know, are essentially illegally in Mexico. And because of that, um, they're vulnerable. Uh, Criminals know they won't go to the police. They often transit through really rural and isolated parts of the country so as not to get, you know, caught and detained and deported. But that also leaves them really vulnerable to kidnapping. Um, and, and I mentioned the cartels earlier. The cartels have also turned and created an entire industry out of kidnapping Central American migrants um, and, and, you know, exchange for ransom for, from their family members in the U.S., which is, which is really tragic. So when migrants take on all these, all this, this world of violence to get to the U.S., I think it's really noteworthy because it shows us that if people are willing to risk and prepare for rape and kidnapping and even death, there's a reason, right? It means that there's greater suffering and hardship at home. One thing that struck you during your stay was how people you worked with, they came to you for your input, even when there were other, more qualified people to ask. What do you believe was at work there, Kelsey? Yeah, so this was this was really striking to me. You know, I was um, in central Mexico on a Fulbright grant as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old person just out of college. And yet, you know, my boss at the university frequently asked me advice on how to structure curriculum as opposed to asking, you know, the more qualified professors that had been there for years. Uh, They had me go to college fairs to represent the university, even though I didn't (laughs) knew next to nothing about it at the Mm -hmm. time. Um, They had me emcee the kind of end of the year event uh, with parents and families and community members, government officials. So I think what all this points to is that is really, you know, white privilege and American privilege in Mexico. I think in the research that I've done previously and and as part of this project, um, you know, just as just as here in the U.S., in Mexico, there is a implicit implicit biases and an implicit hierarchy of colors and cultures. And suddenly, as a white American, I felt the weight of that. I felt the ways in which my voice was unnaturally propped up. So I tried to, you know, push back about that, or push back on that. Um, I tried to say that I don't represent everyone from the U.S. I tried to um, offer my, my ideas when I felt like they were useful, but but remind my boss to, to ask the professors or other people that were more qualified than I. But I think it points to, um, you know, the power dynamics at play, which play into the larger theme of migration. When I, It goes back to that question that I started this conversation with. Why do I have the privilege to go and study people in Mexico for two weeks while the man next to me on the bus couldn't go see his family? Um, power dynamics is a big part of this story. Speak for a moment about your coworker who Googled engineering jobs in Australia, your student who declined a scholarship in New York, your friend whose dreams took off when he left the United States. How has Trump's rise changed how Latinos perceive the United States, Kelsey? 
so many people I spoke to, my coworkers and such, no longer saw the U.S. as this beacon of opportunity. Um, you know, they were looking at going to Canada if they were studying abroad. The the language vilifying um, immigrants, the xenophobia, had a profound impact, I saw, just in the months that I was in Mexico. I remember a conversation I had with a student of mine who had worked for years to study in an English-speaking country. And she had a conversation with me right before she was about to be placed. She was going to go either to the U.S. or Canada. And she said if she was placed in the U.S., she wasn't going to go because she was too afraid of being targeted, um, you know, for a hate crime. And that to me is really tragic. I think about all the cross-cultural connections that are lost when we spout racist discourse across borders that has an effect and it shuts down those international ties. While the migrant protection protocol was, you argue, argue, never really about protecting either migrants or the United States, it is even more dangerous in the age of the coronavirus pandemic. How so? Yeah, so the migrant protection protocols, um, for those that don't know, um, it's, it's kind of a strange name to me because, and is often referred to as remain in Mexico, because yes, it was never really about protecting migrants. It was about making the asylum system so complicated that migrants would be deterred from, from seeking asylum. So it compelled um, those seeking asylum uh, and applying at the southern border to go back and wait on the Mexican side of the border while their court, uh, cases go through the U.S. courts, which can be years. So you have these um, kind of pseudo-refugee camps along the border in a lot of Mexican border cities that are overcrowded and unsanitary to begin with. Then in a pandemic like we're facing now, we are so ill-prepared to deal with COVID-19 sweeping across those refugee camps. Um, again, they're overcrowded. There's no, um, you know, sewage systems. There's no um, access to running water and places to, to wash your hands, those sorts of things. And people are really cramped together. Um, so we are not prioritizing the safety of those of those people that are looking for a better life. Instead, we're rendering them even more vulnerable, not only to organized crime along the border, but now on top of that to COVID-19. Given that many U.S. businesses depend on undocumented migrants for labor and that those people would, for a number of reasons, be less likely to seek out medical assistance were they to have COVID-19-like symptoms. Does the relief bill include provisions that would make medical care accessible to undocumented people without fear of ICE reprisals? No. um, Unfortunately, the stimulus bill isn't prioritizing the needs of undocumented immigrants, um, which to prioritize their needs is only in our interest in this pandemic because, you know, um, for undocumented communities who don't typically have health insurance, getting medical care is, is the last resort. Um, it's, it's, it can render someone brain, bankrupt. It's, it's not what um, people typically seek out. So if you have undocumented communities staying home, not getting medical care, it just makes the disease that much worse. Um, And, you know, we think about the fact that our 
undocumented workers are disproportionately employed in industries that are either you know, doing mass layoffs, like you know, restaurants and construction industry, or that are high-risk jobs deemed essential right now, like farm workers, where people are still working in tight quarters um, and having to risk their lives to continue working. Um, so they're just even more vulnerable to the disease, but then don't have access to medical care. Kelsey, what message did migrants you met in Mexico want you to share with those Americans like President Trump who denounce and denigrate them? I think that they're humans, not criminals, um, that seeking out a better life. And I think what they wanted people to see that these are impossible situations they're in, where they're choosing between death and a horribly violent journey that could result in death, um, to cross the border and get to the United States. Um, so these are choices that aren't choices. They're um, impossible situations where there is no legal option to come to the U.S. And that causes people to then take on this perilous journey north across Mexico, taking a freight train that was never meant for humans um, and risking their lives to then arrive in a country that is exploiting their labor and and not giving them protections, especially, you know, during this pandemic, I think it's really clear the inequities we see. So I think ultimately the aim of No Option But North is to cultivate respect, um, respect for migrants as humans and respect um for all that they take on for a better life. Kelsey Freeman is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The book is No Option But North, The Migrant World and the Perilous Path Across the Border. Check out our website, KelseyFreemanAuthor.com. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Charlie.